You know we love spooky things. This is why we fell in love with Michigan-based Lynn B. Designs. When I popped the pumpkin spice all the things wax melt into my burner, my home was filled with a delicious buttery scent. Plus, there's the wide variety of a gorgeous nail polishes with themes like Hocus Pocus and Pleasant Peninsula. All products are vegan and cruelty-free, and you can find monthly sales on Facebook and Instagram at Lynn B. Designs. Head to lynnbdesigns.store today. Again, that's L-Y-N-B-designs.store. We love them. We love you. It's great nail polish. It's the best I've ever used. Thanks! Michiganders can be a superstitious bunch. We find all sorts of reasons to explain the world around us, sometimes pulling from science, sometimes tradition, and sometimes from our imaginations. What happens when we can't readily explain our experiences? And what happens when a ghost story gets out of hand? Do these legends stem entirely from fantasy? Or are people seeing things no one can truly explain? I'm Krista K. Coburn. And I'm Kay Gray. Welcome to Haunted Mitten. Uh, this evening, we're going to get a little bit weirder than we usually do, minus the Bigfoot rant. Um, occasionally, we do venture in, out from our kind of ghostly wheelhouse into other paranormal territories, especially because people seem to really want that. Yeah! <laughs> from all of the live live things we've done. Heck yes! Um, this one might be one of the stranger things we've covered, although I feel like it does tie into like shipwrecks and things. And yeah. Some of our other tours. Um, so we've talked a little bit about a few of the things that have happened um, in this mysterious place without directly talking about it. Um, but now we get to. Yay! Weird shit. The Lake Michigan Triangle takes up a large part of the lake itself, stretching from Benton Harbor, Michigan, to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, in a near-right triangle. It just so happens to span across the deadliest freshwater in the world, which probably helps its reputation. There are countless ships broken apart at the bottom of Lake Michigan, and as we talked about in the cemeteries episode, a lot of bodies as well. Yeah, this is a very dangerous <laughs> part of the world. There are several theories as to why the triangle is so mysterious and so deadly, but first we'd like to tell you about some of the odder things to happen out on the waves. The first recorded shipwreck out on the, on the lake was one that we have talked about at length on a previous episode, Le Griffon. Yeah. One of my faves. <laughs> Haunted Heartland, a book by Beth Scott and Michael Norman, says about Le Griffon, quote, She was the first sailing vessel on the Great Lakes, 60 feet in length and 45 tons. Her mainmast and mizzenmast carried more than a dozen square sails. She was built from a single white oak, which is crazy. One of Michigan's trees. Yes. Uh, her lines faithfully followed the natural shape of the living tree, end quote. Her maiden voyage was August 7th, 1679. So we're going back. Yeah, we're going, we're going back quite a ways for this. <laughs> Quoting again, a dense fog becalmed her on Lake Erie. A violent squall nearly tore the little ship apart as it entered Lake Huron on August 25th. Another calm settled on the ship. End quote. Sounds like an auspicious start. <laughs> yeah, they, they did not have an easy time on this voyage. Uh, no. But she was the first of her kind, so hey. It's true. It's, it's very true. 
There are many legends about what happened next to Le Griffon. According to Haunted Heartland, the local Iroquois people didn't believe the ship capable of floating and supposedly made plans to burn it, but failed in their attempts. And LaSalle, the ship's builder, was not a fan of the Jesuit priests, who he thought were too friendly with the Iroquois, how dare they, and mocked them in front of the Iroquois prophet, prophet um, whose name I always mispronounce, mispronounce Matiamek. Who was oh, is con- that how it's pronounced? I assume so. I've always heard it Mediomek, but that means nothing. Oh, I have no idea. Like, that literally means nothing. Because no. <laughs> I don't it, know... Um, I don't know Iroquois at all. No. The closest I know is um, Algonquin because of Anishinaabe, but I don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, we don't even really know that. Um, Those are just the local. That's yeah. the local language. I don't know. We um, <sighs> Pronounce as you will. Um, uh, Matia Mac, who was converted to Christianity by the Jes- Jesuits. Uh, Matiamek then, quote, cursed the ship, its builder, LaSalle, and its blasphemous griffin talisman, end quote. LaSalle was killed by his crew later, which is kind of fulfilling the longer curse Matiamek put on them. Yeah. <laughs> he did I not mean, have a good ending. No. Oh, man. It's not good. Um, If he was cursed, I believe it, because, oh, <laughs> oh, he did not have a good end. No. And the poor unfortunates who followed him. Yeah. But there is another legend about the Griffon. There are a lot. There's but a lot. this is another major one. Um, it was told to us by Marion Kuklo in her book, Haunts and Hauntings. Tells of two Jesuit priests who destroyed a rock sacred to the people living along the Detroit River. As angry people are wont to do, they gathered up a lot of rocks and turned them into a monster serpent. Which pursued the Griffon relentlessly for 10 years before finally sinking her and getting revenge. However, according to Haunted Heartland, the last confirmed sighting was by LaSalle on September 18th, 1679. So, like, she lasted maybe a year. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Some (laughs) Potawatomi people later told LaSalle that they had seen the ship tossing in a violent storm. So, you know, eh? maybe that violent storm was caused by a serpent. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Wikipedia, of course, is very succinct about it all. Quote, the ship landed on an island in Lake Michigan where the local tribes had gathered with with animal pelts to trade with the French. LaSalle disembarked and on the 18th of September sent the ship back toward Niagara. On its return trip from the island, said to be located in the mouth of the body of water, which is now known as Green Bay, it vanished with all six crew members and its load of furs. Yep. (laughs) And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else is known about the sinking. No one has ever officially found the wreckage. There have been many claims. Yeah. Uh, what we do know is that people still claim to see her, this time in ghost ship form. Yeah. <laughs> A lakeeffectliving.com says, quote, For centuries, sailors on Lake Michigan have claimed to see the ghostly outlines of an antiquated ship emerge suddenly out of a fog bank. But just when the ship seems about to collide, the griffin vanishes. Others swear that the griffin can be glimpsed on foggy nights still sailing out of Green Bay Harbor. Not surprisingly, sighting the lost griffin is regarded as a sign of bad luck. Yeah. Quote. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, shit. We saw the doomed griffin. We're, we're fucked. Yep. Oh. There's so many theories about her demise, too. Like, we just, we have no idea. So, no. obviously, everybody went wild. Right. 
And this is what, 16? This is 1670. So yeah. you've had a long time to speculate. Yes. <laughs> and we will have a longer time still. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. definitely. <laughs> but Lake Michigan was not going to be satisfied with just one. The schooner Thomas Hume was hauling lumber from Muskegon to Chicago when it went missing with six men aboard during a squall, which is a sudden violent storm, on Lake Michigan on May 21st, 1891. She sailed with a ship we'll be talking about again, the Ralph Simmons, when the storm hit. The Ralph Simmons turned back like a smart ship, but the Hume sailed on, some stories saying her captain, Harry Albrightson, mocked the Ralph Simmons for being too cowardly for not continuing. Uh, when sailing a ship on the Great Lakes, you should not There's no such succumb thing. to pride. Yeah, no such thing as too cowardly, especially <laughs> on Lake Michigan. You really got to check your pride. Yes. It took two days for anyone to notice the Hume had disappeared and was only noted when the Rouse Simmons finally made port in Chicago and didn't see her sister ship waiting there already. A search was sent out to other ports, but no one found a trace of the Thomas Hume until the 1990s. A&T Recovery of Chicago found a schooner wreck at the bottom of Lake Michigan off the coast of New Buffalo, but it wasn't positively identified until around 2009. Because there were so many. It's too many. <laughs> we don't know which oh one this is. Yeah. It's, <laughs> this could be any schooner. There's like a million down there. Oh, yeah. there's The, the bottom of Lake Michigan is just littered with shipwrecks. It's incredible. I'm pretty sure that's all the, the floor of the lake is. Yeah, like 50%. <laughs> Uh, michiganshipwrecks.org great website right i'm weird i like it um anyway <laughs> michiganshipwrecks.org writes quote among many of the wild theories concocted about the wreck is that her captain sailed to another port repainted the thomas hume and then sailed away you sure do, you do run into this every once in a while and it's like sure whatever sure why <laughs> why because why not uh, another theory was that a much larger steamer ran down the schooner and the steamer's captain swore his crew to secrecy, end quote. <laughs> right. Because that's going to happen. Again, why? <laughs> yeah. uh, those are both absolutely and totally the reasons why the ship never showed back up. Absolutely. No. No. <laughs> Minus that, you know, being at the bottom of the lake thing. Right. We, we, we have solved the mystery. Yes. Yes. Uh, but the Thomas Hume is considered the Lake Michigan Triangle's real first victim, uh, despite Ligrophon disappearing centuries before that. Uh, however, it certainly won't be the last one. Nope. <laughs> Remember that other ship I just talked about? Yeah. Hey, guess what? No ships on this lake have a good ending. <laughs> very few. It's, it's seriously rough sailing. It yeah. is the most dangerous of the Great Lakes. Yes. So the Rouse Simmons, better known as the Christmas tree ship, um, sank off the coast of Two Rivers, Wisconsin, carrying a load of Christmas trees. This ship was also owned by the same company as the Thomas Hume, which really sucks for that company. Yeah, I remember <laughs> reading about the Christmas tree ship, too. It was a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. But sailing Lake Michigan made them a large profit. When their ships made it to port, so I guess. Which, I mean, they did more often make it to port. Yeah. Than but, not, but. You know, it's still. I mean, clearly it was worth the risk, because you're taking a terrible risk. You really are. I mean, some of these guys took really, really horrible risks. You and really it did are. not pay off. Yeah. <laughs> when it sank, the Rouse Simmons had over 5,000 trees aboard and sailed with electric lights and decorations on its mast. I've seen black and white photos 
Yes, I have too. It, it looked very it's, lovely. It's kind of um, adorable. Yeah. It sailed out in November 1912, stupid, from <laughs> Thompson, Michigan, hoping to capitalize on the Christmas tree shortage and made its stop in Chicago. According to WisconsinShipwrecks.org. Yeah, I'm pulling them all in. Yeah. Because we got so many wrecks. Yeah. Uh, quote, Captain Schooneman, the Rouse Simmons, and her estimated 16 crew and passengers never arrived at Chicago. Lost with all hands somewhere on the lake, the location of the Rouse Simmons wreck remained a mystery for 59 years. Mm-hmm. Christmas trees washed up along the coastline for years to follow. And in 1923, Captain Schooneman's wallet came up in a fisherman's net near Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. End quote. Kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> Not only, you know, those 5,000 Christmas trees, but the captain's wallet. Yeah. Well, here's proof. He's gone. Yep. Most likely. Yeah. There had been shifty looking weather the day she sailed out, and it was sketchy already to sail in November. Yeah, on the don't Great do that. Lakes. Don't do that. Don't do that. But the captain went for it anyway. And legend has it that there was a terrible blizzard, and the Rouse Simmons was last seen with ice encrusted onto her hull, sailing into the gale. But according to archaeologists and the divers studying the ship, it must have. <laughs> but according to archaeologists and divers studying the ship, it must have been a rather clear day. There was no sign of the kind of damage ice would do. And according to the weather records, the storm didn't hit the area until around 5 p.m., well after the ship would have been there. She disappeared seemingly out of the blue. Wouldn't be the first, wouldn't be the last. Nope. Who knows? <laughs> it's just gone. Yep. And this is kind of the crux of the Lake Michigan Triangle. Who knows? It's just gone. Mm-hmm. The largest loss of life in the Triangle and in all of the Great Lakes happened when the P.S. Lady Elgin? I El- think. Elgin? Elgin, I'm going to say Elgin. <laughs> uh, caught in a gale, rammed into the much smaller schooner Augusta of Oswego in the early hours of September 8, 1860. Sailing from Chicago to Milwaukee, she carried over 300 passengers, mm-hmm. all having a grand time listening to a German brass band after spending a day listening to political speeches. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, sure. We'll go with fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Winnetka? Winnetka? Winnetka. WinnetkaHistory.org posted an article about the wreck from 2010. Quote, the Lady Elgin sighted the Augusta, a schooner filled with lumber, around 2.30 a.m. Visibility was poor, storm clouds raged, and the waves were intense. The Augusta's load of lumber shifted and the two boats collided. Within minutes, the atmosphere on the Lady Elgin went from merriment to pandemonium. The Augusta, sustaining minimum damage, kept sailing to Chicago. Sure. That's I I wow. hit, that's called a, we call that a hit and run these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a large hole in its side, the Lady Elgin sank within a half hour, which if you don't know boats is really fucking fast. That's really fast. Yeah. People were only able to get in 3 of the lifeboats. The large upper hurricane deck fell straight into the water and served as a raft for some 40 people. End quote. Wow. Yeah. And Rose still didn't let Jack on. <laughs> that wasn't the point. Anyway. I had to include I that still joke. haven't seen this movie. It's <laughs> you haven't seen Titanic? No, I've never Holy seen shit, it. We have to watch Titanic. <laughs> uh, so the article goes on to state that the waves and wind were so bad 
that survivors' bodies and debris washed up on the shores of Winnetka, Wisconsin, miles away from where the crash happened. Survivors, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Woo, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, many more people died in the breakwaters just offshore. Not surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current and wind too strong for them to reach the hundreds of folks that had gathered to rescue them. Yeah. A lot of people actually die right along the shoreline yeah, in, in these cases. Our currents are awful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Strangely, the Augusta arrived in Chicago with little damage done to her, despite being significantly smaller than the Lady Elgin. She didn't so much as stop to make sure the Lady Elgin was all right, but sailed on, seemingly oblivious. Wow. In fact, people were so outraged that the Augusta hadn't stopped. The owner sold it to another company who immediately painted and renamed it. Because that's now a curse ship. Yeah. (laughs) But why didn't she stop? Why wasn't there any major damage done? That is pretty incredible. Hardy little ship, I guess. But It's like she didn't even know. She hit anything. She hit anything. That's wild. Yeah. Like. What was the captain thing, or whoever was? I don't. Uh, who, was yeah, in charge whoever at the was time. on duty, like, yeah, I have no idea. But How the Augusta bizarre. like got to Chicago, and it was basically like, "What do you mean, three hundred people are dead? <laughs> like, what, <are> you... <laughs> what shipwreck? <laughs> what shipwreck? What are you talking about? That's man, what was going on there? Yeah. Um, however, shipwrecks aren't the only events to have occurred within the Lake Michigan Triangle. Oh no. <laughs> It's it's no, re- if really it nasty just, bit of if it was just shipwrecks, we yeah. wouldn't call it the Lake Michigan Triangle. No, yeah, no. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain George Donner, some sources say Donner, D O N E R versus D O N N E R, was a well-respected man on the lake. By the age of fifty-seven, he'd been working on the water in some capacity for decades, and he was known and loved by his company and his crew. So when we say he just disappeared one day while sailing from Erie, Pennsylvania to Port Washington, Wisconsin, we want you to know that nowhere have we found that it says he wasn't amazing at his job, was a screw up, or not careful about his work. Yeah. Like, uh, every article I read could not stress that enough. He was exemplary. Yes. Or was he? (laughs) (laughs) Uh as a fa- in fact, at the time he disappeared, he had already navigated the O.S. McFarland through the Straits of Mackinac, the most dangerous stretch, stretch of freshwater in the world. There is no place mm-hmm. more dangerous. And it's more dangerous than a lot of not freshwater. Than a lot of, yeah, than a lot it's, of, yeah. It's one of the most dangerous seaways in the entire world. Yep. He told his crew that he was heading for a much-needed nap. And for them to wake him when they were approaching port, and he went to his quarters, reading from the Pine Barren Institute's article on the disappearance. Quote, three hours later at 1.20 a.m., now April 29th and Captain Donner's birthday. His birthday. Oof. The ship began its approach into Port Washington. Following the captain's orders, the second mate approached the cabin to alert Donner that he was needed in the pilot house to prepare for docking procedures. The man proceeded to knock on the door, but strangely, there was no answer. Calling for the captain once again, there was no answer. Concerned that the captain could not hear him for some reason, the second mate made the decision to enter the room, but when he attempted to turn the handle, it would not move. The door, it appeared, was locked from the inside. Worried that the captain would sleep past the point he insisted he be woken up at, the second mate went to retrieve the master key. After bringing first mate Charles Riker up to speed as to what was going on, he headed back to the captain's cabin and proceeded to unlock the door. 
Making his presence known before walking down the stairs and stepping into the room, the second mate assumed he would hear Donna respond to his announcement and call him in, but just as before, he heard nothing. Now, worried that perhaps the captain had undergone some sort of medical emergency and wasn't able to respond, the second mate opened the door with authority and proceeded inside, but was waiting. But what was waiting for him behind the st sturdy wooden door and at the bottom of the stairs was not what he expected. For there in front of him was nothing besides an empty room. The captain, it appeared, was gone. Dun, dun, dun. End quote. The ship was searched, the crew interrogated, but no one had even seen the captain, much less knew where he might be. Search and rescue was immediately sent out, but by the next morning it was growing more obvious that if they found anything, it would most likely be a body. What we do know is that the captain had not... Ha the what we do know is that the captain had complained to the steward of, quote, not feeling well, end quote, and that he hadn't slept in a long while due to worrying about the possible perilous journey in icy Michigan and icy Lake Michigan waters. So it seems possible he fell overboard. However, this doesn't appear to be one of the rumors surrounding the incident. Hmm. Others became much more prominent, like the crew murdering him and tossing him overboard for <laughs> some reason, for whatever reason that they thought. Um... How dare he do so well going through super deadly waters? Kill him. Or the captain tying weights to his ankles and taking his own life. Also. You wouldn't need the weights. Why? No, he wouldn't. Not there. You, you would die very quickly from hypothermia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's also telling that the Lake Michigan Triangle was in the minds of sailors even in the 30s, for the more superstitious of them claimed Donner might have been taken by something and was left in the triangle for good. Dun, dun, dun. No, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of, it's an infamous stretch because, yeah, so many ships went down. And even even today, like mm -hmm. even the shoreline of Lake Michigan, you have to be so careful. Yep. Our riptides are worse than like the Pacific. Mm -hmm. It's bad. Yeah. The Pine Barrens article cites newspapers reporting on the incident, reiterating how the crew were worried about him at the time and how their captain was acting spacey and forgetful with his lack of sleep. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very possible that Captain Donner fell overboard or started hallucinating or any of the other terrible things that happen when you don't get sleep. <laughs> I can vouch for that. Uh, or maybe the tribal t triangle took him, like these guys said. Who knows? Uh, though probably sleep deprivation um, had a hand. It's probably sleep I'll deprivation. Say. But it's like, yeah. No, they found nothing. His room was locked from the inside. It's, Yeah. Which is so interesting. Whenever a room is locked from the inside, you're like, how did it get that way? But how did it get that way? We were talking about that about bathrooms. How is, why is the bathroom still locked from the inside? <laughs> I feel like we've had this discussion a lot. Hmm. I actually just read a mystery book. Um, it was Murder on the Christmas Express. Hmm. And yeah, there were two bodies and they were both locked from the inside. And it's because the dun, dun, dun. there was hallucination involved because, well, don't take drugs together. Uh, <laughs> don't take drugs, but especially don't mix them. Um, Ooh. and you know allergies suck <laughs> fair enough but yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on in that I'm not trying to spoil it but <laughs> yeah there there actually are several reasons a door could be locked from the inside but yeah. usually there's also a body and in this case we have no body right so who knows but yeah he was gone from then that was it on his birthday yeah that sucks that sucks okay Time to get to the really weird stuff. June 23rd, 1950, an entire plane disappeared. The whole plane. 
Flight 2501 was heading from New York to Seattle, carrying a total of 58 people, and its flight path took it directly over the Lake Michigan Triangle. There was a bad electrical storm that night around 11, and the pilot radioed a request to lower to 2,500 feet to try to avoid the worst of the storm. They were denied their request. That was the last time control towers heard from the flight. Maybe you should listen to pilots. I'm just saying. <laughs> like, I've, I've flown through. Not like I wasn't flying. I was on a plane that flew. Yes. Through the Michigan Triangle. And I definitely was thinking of all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the plane. I'm like, oh, great. And there was a flight the previous day or a couple of days before that had had issues. And I want to say it went down. And not like in a bad way. It just, they had to it land. It landed. Yeah. Um, nobody died from what I remember. And I'm thinking, and we're flying through this. Hmm. Great. Really happy that the one time that I've flown through it, I uh, didn't know any of this. <laughs> yeah, it was in uh, winter, I think, as well that I went through. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm so happy you're alive. It was like a 45-minute flight, but the whole time, yeah, all of this stuff is going through my head because <laughs> it's me. It's you. Milwaukee Mag writes, quote, It was nearing midnight when the, the control tower at Mitchell Field tried to contact Flight 2501. No one had heard from the plane since its 1113 request to a Chicago control tower to reduce its altitude, which was denied due to air traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Call sent out into the storm produced no reply. Operators in Milwaukee then issued a blind broadcast asking the pilot to identify himself by circling Mitchell Field. The Milwaukee tower nervously watched the skies. After a half hour, an emergency signal alert was issued to locate the missing craft. End quote. For two days, rescuers searched the lake for any sign of the plane and its passengers. Two oil slicks were spotted floating on the water, but there was nothing else. Not until body parts and small pieces of baggage and wreckage were found on the shores of South Haven, Michigan. The beaches were closed for days um, as rescue and cleanup crews scoured and picked and gathered piece after piece. Nothing large was ever found of the plane or its passengers and crew. The plane itself has never been found. What was found of the people was buried in two mass graves in Michigan, one at Lakeview Cemetery, South Haven, and one in Riverview Cemetery in St. Joseph. It was the largest plane accident of its time. That's incredible that they didn't find any part of the craft, but they found body parts. Mm -hmm. They only found what was washed up on shore. Oof. So anything that sank sank it's gone it's gone it's Mm -hmm. still there february 20th 1978 uh stephen kubacki i think i believe uh disappeared from the shore of lake michigan close to his school hope college he had been cross-country skiing alone oh that's a good idea (laughs) by good idea i mean terrible (laughs) (laughs) a day after his disappearance snowmobilers or snowboarders as some sources say are very different but those are very fine. different it's probably snowmobilers yeah michigan did invent the snowboard though oh hell yeah yeah oh sweet yeah up in the traverse city area they that would. is a very much your welcome world <laughs> gave you snowboarding <laughs> um so yeah probably snowmobilers <laughs> uh they were tooling around Sagatuck, found a backpack and abandoned skis and immediately called police to report a missing person smart a search through the backpack revealed steven's identification a 200-yard trail of footprints led to the shore of Lake Michigan, where they stopped right at the water's edge. Police suspected he had fallen or gone in the water and either frozen or drowned. Yeah, that's so many things could happen at that point. 
A search for him or his body was conducted, but no one found any sign of Stephen except what had been left on shore. And then, May 5th, 1979, Stephen woke up in the grass in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He wore clothing he didn't remember owning and had a backpack full of maps and other traveling equipment. He remembered nothing of the year he had been gone. Ellen Killeran's blog, Cold Dead Hands, has an article on Stephen and writes, quote, He also had $40 in cash, new glasses, sneakers, and a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. I feel like I've done a lot of running, he said in an interview the week he reappeared. His memory right up until his disappearance remained intact. He said the last thing he remembered was feeling cold and scared of being lost in the frozen darkness. Kubaki told a reporter that he believed his blackout was caused by exhaustion and exposure and said he would see a medical doctor for a physical, but he would not be seeing a psychiatrist. Kubaki insisted that he was in a healthy frame of mind when he set off for the skiing trip and still was, end quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, don't. I question how healthy your frame of mind is because that was a stupid idea. Like, he shouldn't have gone out there alone and gone to the lakeshore alone. Sure. In the in winter like that. That yeah. was not very smart. But what the fuck um, happened to him? Yeah. I, I've heard about this a few times. It's pretty weird. Fugue state? I don't know, man. I mean, the cold does Aliens. wild things to you. So, Kubaki is alive and well, living in the Pacific Northwest. So, well away from Lake Michigan. As far as we know, as far as we know, he still doesn't remember anything about the year he was missing. But he is working as a psychologist. So, maybe one day he'll figure it all out. I feel like that's a normal thing for people to go into when strange things like this happen. Yeah. They, for sure. They want to understand. Yeah. He did write a book called Meta Mathematical Foundations of Existence. Uh, Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. Mm-hmm. Do with that what you will, I guess. Right? <laughs> I, I, oh, it does sound really dense. I don't know if I'd want to read it or not. <laughs> I, I kind of do, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, a guy that completely disappeared off the face of the planet for an entire year and was found states away from his home would absolutely write a book like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's, you got to do some soul searching on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So according to Ellen Killeran, there's a lot more to this story, but for our purposes, we are going to move on. Sorry. Yeah. Y'all. I guess there's a whole bunch <laughs> of stuff that happened afterwards, but like, it's not. Yeah. Cause I remember seeing it on like a, like an unexplained mysteries or something yeah. like that. And if we were focused on Steven, like we would get into all of that, but it's not, it's like, it's purely right. him related. Yeah. Yep. So uh, check out her blog link in the show notes. Okay, remember to put it in the show notes. <laughs> hey, we'll talk about it. Uh, she's got six entries on this case alone. Yeah, but it was a lot. Let's continue. We have UFOs to talk about. So actually, before we even get to that, I do want to mention that this happened again later on with another student of Hope College who literally went to the edge of the lake in winter and went missing four months and showed up again and had no idea what the fuck happened maybe that was the story i read no i think it was the other guy i don't know it Um, could have been but yeah this is not unheard of which is strange i'm like what the hell really strange stuff happens around um i would say southern to mid lake michigan yeah that's what we're talking about south haven grand haven yeah yep those are smack dab in the middle of the fucking triangle yep 
1994 UFO sighting over Lake Michigan is an event we will probably cover in much greater detail in a later season, uh, but we'd be missing a huge part of the story of the Triangle if we didn't mention it now. March 8th, 1994 is a date that still sticks out in a lot of people's minds on the west side of the state. Over 300 people in multiple counties called into police stations reporting mysterious lights in the sky. Quoting from the Free Press, quote, Daryl and Holly Graves and their son Joey told reporters in 1994 they witnessed lights in the sky over Holland at about 9.30 p.m. on March 8th. I saw six lights out the window above the barn across the street, Joey Graves told the Free Press in 94. I got up and went to the sofa and looked up at the sky. They were red and white and moving, end quote. The Ottawa County Central Dispatch from March 1994 quoted the family as saying, It was just sitting there. It was a big circle. It had lights, but they weren't blinking. It was circular and turning, but not blinking. Calls came into 911 nonstop. Everyone from police officers to the National Weather Service Station in Muskegon reporting that they were seeing some really weird lights above the lake. Quote, My guy looked at the radar and observed three echoes as the officer was describing the movement. A Leo Grenier, 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 of the NWS office in Muskegon said in 1994, The movement of the objects was rather erratic. The echoes were there about 15 minutes, drifting slowly south-southwest, kind of headed toward the Chicago side of the south end of Lake Michigan. End quote. In 1995, the Free Press published the conversation between the National Weather Service and Welthaus. What do you think it is, said the Weather Service radar operator. Welthaus described witnesses seeing five to six objects, some cylindrical, with blue, red, white, and green lights. The radar operator said... There were three and sometimes four blips, and they weren't planes. Planes show as pinpoints on the scope. These were the size of half a thumbnail. They were from five to 12,000 feet at times, moving all over the place. Three were moving toward Chicago. I never saw anything like it before, not even when I'm doing severe weather. End quote of the whole thing. MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, sent investigators out to collect stories and do follow-ups with those who called emergency lines to report the mysterious lights in the sky. People all up and down the range of the Triangle witnessed something in 94. Fun fact, while researching if there have been clumps of sightings in the area over the years, I discovered that 1994 was a hot year for UFO sightings. In June, there were 100 sightings reported to the National UFO Reporting Center, and every other month had at least 10 reports, which seemed to be collected from all over the world, with the vast majority coming from the U.S., just kind of wild to find that essentially there could be UFOs all the time everywhere. Paranormal, super weird, yo. So weird. <laughs> Do you remember that, though? I have, like, vague recollections, but not really. Which okay. is interesting because I feel like I should remember that. Mm. <laughs> so Yeah, because I'm like, okay, 94, mm. all at, like, Kalamazoo and Portage are definitely included in that. Yeah. In that area. So I'm like, and I have family in Grand Haven. I should really ask them. About oh, that. that's true. So yeah, I have vague, vague recollections, but not really. And it, they might not have treated it very seriously by the time I hit the Gazette. Yeah, it's all. Kalamazoo Gazette is fairly conservative. Okay, yeah. I don't know how it is today, but while I was growing up, it was extremely conservative. Yeah. So because a lot of um, articles and things call it like the 1994 Kalamazoo UFO sightings even though it was, like, that entire region. Mm -hmm. It just would have been but, the, one of the most major cities. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and this wasn't the only major UFO event to happen in the vicinity of the Triangle. That's pretty famous for its lights. Yeah. In 1978, the Coast Guard station near Ludington, Michigan, called the station in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, to be on the lookout for a cigar-shaped craft heading toward their area. According to the book, The Lake Michigan Triangle, Mysterious Disappearances and Haunting Tales by Gail Susek, quote, Ludington personnel had the object in sight and said that it displayed flashing red, white, orange, and green lights and was moving at a calculated speed of more than 1,200 miles per hour, end quote. Ludington then advised... Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Died. <laughs> so close to the end. Ludington then advised the Sturgeon Bay uh, CGS Coast Guard Station to be on the lookout for the craft. And at nearly 4 a.m., a call from St. Joseph's Coast Guard Station came to Ludington. A couple had called into the station asking about a cylindrical craft with lights that hovered for 30 minutes near Rocky Gap County Park before taking off in a flash over the water. Quote, observers noted that the white light was blindingly bright and it strobed erratically over the water, end quote. Crew from both the Ludington and Two River stations apparently took photos of what they were seeing, but the stories of where those photos are is up for debate. Either they were submitted to the commander of the 9th Coast Guard District, but were, quote, lost in the mail, or they were actually submitted to the National Enquirer. Either way, there are no photos these days to scrutinize. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> lost in the mail or sent to, um, you know. Someone who will pay us. Trash tabloid, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the fact that it was a bunch of Coast Guard stations who report the sightings is interesting. Yeah. You know, it adds a little authority to the case with or without the photos. And that's something that rarely happens in UFO sightings. Yeah. And even the 1994 ones have the National Weather Service. Yeah. Guy. And you have the um, uh, the calls, the 911 calls. Mm-hmm. Can, we can listen to those. Yep. Oh, yeah. I bet those are on YouTube, huh? Probably. Somewhere. Sweet, dude. Mm-hmm. Gotta listen to some things later. But yeah, so it's, I like that, like, both of those cases have, like, backup, I guess. Yeah. Not that, like, like some kind of official quote unquote backup. Yeah. Not that, like, a personal experience is anything less than an, um, right. a, a military guy saying something, but it's for the world at large, it adds some. Yeah. Having, some, like, the radar. Yeah. Having like, the radar is amazing. That's, yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I wish that, like, it had had the ability to be recorded. Because mm-hmm. it's 94, it's too early for that. Like, you couldn't right. just pull out a cell phone and be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Guys, what's going on? But dang it. Live stream. <laughs> Dude. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be amazing. Oh, well. Alas. Yeah, alas. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. Next time. That is not the full extent of things that have reportedly happened in the Lake Michigan Triangle, but we think this covers the major incidents and gives you a good idea of how weird this section of lake really is. There have been even more shipwrecks, even more missing persons, and even reports of USOs, unidentified Mm -hmm. submerged objects. Yes. Around Chicago and Wisconsin. Chicago especially. Weird shit happens around Chicago. Oh, yeah. There's rumors of an alien base under the waters of the lake as well, but we'll leave that for somebody else to debate. In seventh, was it seventh grade? Um, one of my English classes, we were doing like 
sci-fi and things like that. And we were writing short stories. And I actually wrote a short story about um, an alien army amassed on the shores of Lake Michigan outside of South Haven, um, kind of ready to invade. But then they start getting attacked. But what it actually is is the 4th of July, and they set off fireworks. (laughs) (laughs) And so the aliens misinterpret the fireworks as, uh, oh, they're ready for us. Pull back, pull back. Um, So, yeah, I was clearly aware of these things yeah happening because i wrote that story right and it didn't i didn't like pull it out of nowhere yeah say where else would that come from like yeah so this was this was clearly like around at the time dude i couldn't find like any really good researched cited stories of like usos or anything though so like i'm i want to find those yeah i definitely grew up with that being a thing yeah right like i just know that Right. But I can't tell you where on earth I got that information or where they got it. Or... Right. It yeah. was just it was just something I grew up with. Yeah. That mysterious objects have been seen going in and out of Lake Michigan. Yes. The waters of Lake Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Kind of weird. That's weird shit, man. Yeah. It's yeah. just weird. That's that's the like Michigan have Triangle. That's why zero we labeled explanations. It. Yeah. That's I mean, the, the ships obviously could be just weather patterns. It's bad. Planes, yeah. Weather patterns really bad. Um. But the other stuff, you can't it's, really blame the weather on. So. No, there's there's definitely an air of mystery around it. And just like, why does this happen here? Here, Yeah. Like, same with the Bermuda Triangle or I think that there's the Bennington Triangle, I think, in the northeast. Um, that also is like, but why? <laughs> exactly. It's like, but why? <laughs> but why? <laughs> and people try, oh, this weird stuff happens everywhere. But no, Michigan really is more dangerous than the other Great Lakes. Yeah. Even superior. Yes. Like, we know this. Yeah. And we've known this for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Enough, enough weird stuff. <laughs> for now. No. Never. <laughs> so thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can find me, Krista, at Krista K. Coburn on social media. And and me, okay, <laughs> at K. K. Gray writes mostly on the Going Down in Spectacular Flames Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our website is hauntedmitten.com. And you can find the podcast here or any other place you get your podcasts. We do try to be thorough. Check out our Patreon. A dollar a month gets you some exclusive content, including recordings of our live shows, which are growing as we do more and more live shows, as well as the uh, K-Crime Corner, a mostly monthly podcast on true crime in Michigan, which many of them do relate to the stories we talk about. Yeah. Um, And I'm working on it. Sorry, guys. It's a lot to research along with doing the podcast. Yeah. And it's like, I do like the haunting side and then you kind of take over and like, well, here's the... yeah. The true crime side, so to yeah. speak. Um, and we have a merch store, which is linked on our website. Yep. If you want to check it out. What is that? I have no idea. Oh, the slides from the store were gone, but they're back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it, Are, okay. I wrote, but at the time I wrote this, the slides no longer existed in our store. Yeah, because they had this big announcement that they were going away. But they're back, man. I looked. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like them. I haven't, I haven't worn them much lately because it's no, cold it's outside. But. Cold. Um, it's great for like puttering around my yard, my garden. They're lovely. Yeah. They're very comfortable. They're back. They really are. You can get some slides. Yeah. If you're in a warmer climate than we are. Which if you're in Michigan, you're probably not. Nope. <laughs> it's most likely worse because you're probably north of us. Oh yeah. We're the best part if you don't like 
horrific weather. We really are. It just goes right around. <laughs> live we're, in, we're great. Live around Ann Arbor and weather just goes around you. Which makes me a little sad, actually. It's kind of weird because I grew up in the, the lake lakeshore area. Yeah. Lake Effect Snow was a major part of my, my growing years. Right. Oh, well. Yep. <laughs> and as always, happy haunting.